Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Men do take more physical risks than women, but it's not all negative. It's not all risks like killing each other or, you know, behaving violently. Like you said, those risks are also to save the lives of others. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. The following episode is part of the Making Sense of Sex and Gender series on this podcast. In this series, we try to make sense of the distinction between sex and gender and cover trans issues in a very thoughtful and nuanced fashion. We have balanced discussions from multiple perspectives, including scientists, activists, and a leading feminism scholar. This series will hopefully expand your mind and help you make sense of the current heated debates surrounding the distinctions between sex and gender, as well as transgender issues. The aim is to turn down the temperature on this very heated topic and increase understanding and integrate truth with love. I hope you will listen to this entire series with an open mind and an open heart. And as always, we look forward to hearing your feedback and comments on our website and on the YouTube channel. So without further ado, I bring you this episode within the Making Sense of Sex and Gender series. Today we welcome Dr. Carol Hooven on the show. For the past six years, Dr. Hooven has served as a lecturer and co-director of undergraduate studies at Harvard's Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. She has received numerous teaching awards, and her popular Hormones and Behavior class was named one of the Harvard Crimson's Top 10 Tried and True. Currently, Dr. Hooven has moved to the psychology department, where she works as an associate at Steven Pinker's lab. Her latest book is called T, The Story of Testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Carol Hooven about the science of testosterone. Why do males have higher rates of physical violence, take on more risk, and desire more sexual partners? Dr. Hooven's research points to testosterone as the answer. Although sex differences may stem from biology, she also points out that variations in behavior may be better explained by genetics interacting with culture. We also touch on the topics of evolutionary biology, gender dysphoria, gender-affirming care, and academic freedom. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Carol Hooven. Dr. Carol 
Hooven, the Harvard evolutionary biologist. How you doing? I'm okay. It's a little stressful morning, but um, I'm going to get into a Zen mode, I think. <laughs> and thank you for being so patient with me. Oh, my pleasure. Once you start getting into your scientific passion, you'll get into the flow state, I'm sure. Yes. You know, you study testosterone, but you, but more broadly, evolutionary biology. My gosh, can you explain to our audience a little bit about what that field is and, and how you got into it? Wow. Okay. That's a big question. So I think I can start with how I got into it. And it was, I'd say organically, it's easier to understand, I think, in retrospect, just thinking back on my own interests and how they developed. I think I've always been interested in people. And, you know, that to me, that just sounds so obvious. Of course, people are interesting. But like I'm married to someone, for instance, who really doesn't share my interest in human psychology and just kind of figuring out why people behave the way that they behave. You know, that's just always been natural for me. But really not everyone, as you, I'm sure, know, shares that interest. A lot of people are more interested in things or numbers or something like that. So I just realized that I've always been interested in how people work. And in college, I majored in psychology. And it wasn't until my senior year in college when I learned for the, you know, I learned for the first time, I'll start crying at some point, like talking about this always makes me tear up because it was so exciting for me to learn mm -hmm. about the brain and to learn mm -hmm. about neurotransmitters. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that, um, I get emotional talking about it, but I'll never yeah. forget that moment. And I wrote about that in my book, that moment and what, how transformative it was for me, because this was in my senior year. I had taken psychology. I had found it interesting, but I hadn't realized what I was missing until I learned about the brain, until I learned about neurochemistry and like neurons and how they worked and drugs that can affect behavior. And um, that is when I really became passionate about learning more. You know, I was a senior, but I took a lot of classes um, and read a lot of books after I graduated. That's when I became passionate about really trying to understand the biological basis of human behavior. And sort of then I took, I traveled, I read a lot of books, I took a lot of classes and I hadn't taken molecular biology before. I hadn't taken genetics. So I took those classes and traveled all over the world. So it was this combination of learning about evolution and genes and mutations and seeing so many different ecological and cultural environments across the globe that got me really curious about the commonalities between humans, what we all share, these like deep commonalities like sociality and mm. trust and competition and aggression and sexuality, but then all these differences across cultures, like difference in religions and rights of women in different countries. And that is what ultimately got me interested in and sort of hooked on evolution and understanding how evolutionary pressures over time have shaped human nature in a mm. sense, not just humans, but non-human animals too. And I became really interested in that, how evolution shapes these sort of common behaviors between humans and between humans and non-human animals. And then also what accounts for the differences. Ultimately, I just quit my job and applied to Harvard to graduate school to study something about the evolution of human behavior. And I got rejected. And I 
persisted. And I had no right to persist because I didn't really have the, you know, qualifications. And I eventually got offered a job to work in Uganda studying chimps and mm. running the, this uh, chimpanzee field research site in Western Uganda and in the you know jungle, basically. That is what got me interested in sex differences mm. and understanding the biological basis of, of sex differences. Because I was with the chimps that don't have human culture. And I was really struck at that point by you know, I had no, obviously noticed human sex differences, but to see very similar differences in chimps in the jungle with no human culture, that really got me more focused curiosity on what we share with non-human animals that can help explain male-female differences. And that's what got me hooked on testosterone. So, gotcha. and that really, to me, is what evolutionary biology is about. It's understanding how evolutionary processes can help to explain the phenotype, that is the physical and behavioral aspects of organisms. And in this case, you know, mammals and then humans in particular, and then just throw in human culture. That's a whole big piece of the human environment that makes us really fascinating and different from other animals in important ways. But it's a, it's a framework that we can use to understand why we are the way we are, not just how we work, like what's going on in the brain. Why do I like good and plenty, which no one seems to know what that is anymore. Anyway, why do I like certain kinds? Why do I like candy? You know, because yeah. it tastes good, right? There are receptors on my tongue that communicate with my brain and make me motivated to get more, right? So that's one kind of an explanation. But another kind of explanation is a ultimate explanation, is an evolutionary explanation. I am this way because it's been reproductively beneficial to my ancestors over human evolutionary history. And or sorry, that's survival. kind of a <laughs> as well. answer, but yeah, that's evolutionary biology to me. Yeah, evolutionary biology, yeah, either reproduction or survival sort of in the ultimate explanation point of view. But, you know, psychology is so interesting, the proximal, and you probably jump back and forth between different levels of analysis. Oh, yeah. And hormones, you know, really are about what's going on. Yeah. in your body right now. But what I'm really, I'm interested in both. I'm fascinated by how that system works, but then why it works the way it does. There's a lot in what you just said. Let, let me go back to your dissertation work. Um, did you, were you in the Kibale forest? Is that where you were in Uganda? Oh, Kibale. Yeah, so Kibale? that the Kibale National Park, but I thought you were going to, the dissertation was actually with Steve Coslin, And I oh. noticed that you have worked with, you were supervised by Sternberg. Is that correct? Yes, and Jeremy Gray. And, you know, you're not making that up. You're not making that up. And Jeremy Gray okay. uh, and the yeah. neuroscience of intelligence. And, yeah. Okay, so there's some overlap there because that my dissertation was really about was mental rotation oh. on mental rotation and testosterone and evolution. So I was very interested in his oh. work in terms of problems, how we solve idea that there are multiple. Coslin was very good friends with Jeremy Gray. Yeah, multiple pro steps and discrete processes that are involved in solving any complex problem. And when you have, a t when you give someone a test, you get one outcome, you're good at this or you're bad at this. But what I really came to understand, partly due to your advisor's work is that, well, no, you know what, if there's, if there are say male, female differences in 
test scores, it, that difference can derive from differences in any of the processes that are involved in complex problem solving. So we can't necessarily make a judgment that, you know, X group is better than Y group unless we have, unless we understand exactly what we're measuring. That's very, very interesting. There's a little known fact about me, and that's that my first ever peer-reviewed published paper, scientific paper, I wrote like a review that I believe was published first. But anyway, my first ever scientific paper was in the journal Intelligence, and it was on sex differences and mental rotation ability, which I did. Oh, what? That's my whole master's thesis at <laughs> University of Cambridge in the in the biology. I was in the biology oh. department of experimental psychology at Cambridge University. Nicholas McIntosh was my advisor, and he had studied oh, this and topic. What year was this? 2006. Okay, I got my PhD in 04, which is which is probably why I didn't come across that. My whole master's thesis was accounting for it's this. mental rotation. Yeah, 3D mental rotation and exp- trying to explain it through mediating variables, which I did So find. can I just tell the audience yeah. what we're yeah. talking about? Yeah, please do. I stumbled onto mental rotation. Initially, I thought I would do something with chimps. Somehow I stumbled onto mental rotation because it is the largest sex difference in human cognition. So that means in the way that people think and solve problems and navigate their world. And I didn't know what mental rotation was and it sounded totally boring. And in a lot of ways it is totally boring because I think we don't, and I'll just say what it is. This is my hair, skin and nails vitamin, which I have on my desk for some reason. If I were to ask you to imagine what this looked like if I turned it upside down, yeah. why don't you go, you people at home go ahead and do that? Those who are watching the YouTube video. <laughs> what would these letters look like? Okay, if you if this bottle were upside down, right? So in order to solve that problem, what's interesting is in your brain, instead of just regenerating the image at this like this, right? Upside mm-hmm. down, instead of just creating a new image, what you probably all did is go boop, 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 180 degrees. You rotated it in your head. And when you rotated it, you relied on the same neural architecture that you would use to reach out and do what I just did. Boop, 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 boop. So there's this relationship between physical rotation of objects and mental rotation of objects. And you would take longer to answer a question about what this looked like at 180 degrees than you would if I just asked you to imagine it like this, right? And so the degrees that you have to rotate it predicts how long you would take to answer a question about what it would look like at a different angle. So this turns out to be a super important aspect of cognition. And we use it in all kinds of other problem solving areas. So this would be opposed to something like verbal, verbal cognition or other ways of solving problems about Scott, you give me, you're the intelligence guy. And this has been so long for me. Yeah. Give me some other kind of um, vocabulary. Yeah, how would you explain it? <laughs> of course, you know, an IQ test is a smorgasbord of, of things that include the vocabulary and now analogical thinking, you know, there's verbal things with verbal content, things with nonverbal content. There's like within the spatial domain, there's different kinds of tasks. It seems like on average, the sex difference is largest in 3D mental rotation, having to mentally rotate like a three-dimensional cube uh, that you're looking at, as yeah. opposed to a two-dimensional mental rotation. That's, then that's what I wanted to really understand in my dissertation was why. What is that so... Difference. 
Yes, I wanted to double click on the largest sex difference and really understand what yeah. what's going on there. Now, did you look at sex differences in your in your dissertation work? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what it was on entirely and and related to but we used the Shepherd and Metz this is going yeah, to really me too. for the audience. Yeah, I used the so Shepherd and Metz too. <laughs> okay, so I what I want to say to everybody and I think this is super important that this test of the largest sex difference there is in the way we think, which is in imagining rotating three-dimensional objects. And you have to say in this task, this cognitive task, you know, people are always taking tests, right? With uh, where you get one score, you're supposed to say, okay, if I rotate two of these in different ways, can you imagine whether they're the same or different objects? I'm not doing a, a good job describing it, but you have to imagine rotating one object so that it would match another object. And then you have to say whether it's the same or different. And these mm. are paper, usually paper and pencil tasks mm, yeah. that psychology departments all over mostly the country, but also the world hand out to hundreds of people and consistently boys and men blow away girls and women for the most part. This is to say nothing about the cause of this difference. It could be the large environmental or cultural contributions to this difference. So there's this is where we find this huge difference. But if you give people any other kind of test, like the one where that's not just paper and a pencil test, but different tests of this aspect of cognition, you typically get a lower sex difference, a smaller sex difference. Researchers want to get a big, interesting diff group difference uh, so that they can publish their papers and they can say, look, we found that this you know, we have replicated this large sex difference. And there's a big question about this. So this is an effect where people keep using the same test, the Shepard and Metzler paper and pencil test, because it yields, I think partly because it yields this large sex difference. Mm. But we used a more complex computerized test nice. where you get the, you get the slope in addition to the intercept and you can analyze them separately. But anyway, the point is when you hear a report of a large sex difference, you have no idea what where the difference is located. It could be that in the encoding of the objects, the sexes are different. Males might be better at encoding. Males might be better in making a decision. And that's what I came to believe that it's that wasn't I didn't find evidence for the cognitive skill in terms of the actual rotation, but I did find evidence for men being faster and more accurate in terms of decide making a decision about mm. difference that they're more mm. apt to say these two things are different women are more apt to say these two things are the same mm. that doesn't mean that men aren't better at this it's just that i didn't find it in my research and i think there are interesting reasons why on this particular test that everybody uses which is the basis of this claim that men are so much better than women at this test i think a lot of it has to do with the test itself Wow. Rather than some basic inherent difference, which there there may very well be one. I, I think there probably is, but I don't think that this test is totally capturing the actual rotation difference and ability to rotate objects, which I'll just give an example in case people are still wondering why we're talking about this. If you go to pack your trunk and you have suitcases and you know, square ones, rectangular ones, and you have to figure you have to look at the objects and figure out how to move them. You imagine how you can uh, pack them efficiently into your trunk, and you might not even know that you're doing that. You might not even know that you are looking at your luggage and imagining 
how to move it and, and turn things so that it most efficiently and neatly fits into your truck. That's mental rotation. And so these are skills that we use all the time that we don't even recognize, but they help us survive ultimately. Yeah, you don't have to pack your truck to survive, but that's an example that people kind of relate to. I do want to use this as a segue to talk about testosterone. Now, I do remember when I, was, I did my literature review back in 2005 for my master's thesis on this, I had a whole section on the the role of testosterone, especially prenatal testosterone, um, on on this 3D mental ability. You know, you you said, well, it, you know, no one's saying anything about the cause. It could be environmental, but we do have data showing that it, there is a pretty strong contribution of even prenatal testosterone on on this sex difference. Let's zoom out for a second now and just talk a little about what is testosterone. <laughs> what is testosterone? In what ways does it matter? How far reaching is this? Are we talking here? Are we just talking 3D mental rotation or are we talking other things as well? I'm glad you actually brought up the idea that it might be related to cognition. So even though I did my dissertation on sex differences, testosterone, and cognition, I left that out of my book, which is on testosterone and sex differences. The reason I left that out is because I don't think the evidence in that domain is as convincing as the evidence for testosterone's effects on sexual competitive and aggressive um, behavior. So that's where I think the really strong evidence is for an impact of, like you said, pre and directly postnatal testosterone and then pubertal and beyond and how that explains some of the sex differences that we see, many, many of the sex differences that we see um, in humans. So, and then we can come back to that, but the, the part of the reason that the relationship to cognition, I think, is more tenuous, at least in the literature and in, in the research that we have available, is because it's just not obvious how, say, testosterone's, if testosterone increased mental rotation ability, what is the mechanism through which that would have provided a reproductive advantage for males? Right. So that's a little bit difficult. You can come up with a story, but I'm not convinced yeah. by really any of those stories in terms of direct and strong reproductive advantages like you have for male-male aggression. Mm. Mm. So the reason this matters is because testosterone is a reproductive hormone. And I'm just going to back up just so everyone has an idea what a hormone is. Mm. Okay. Here I am with my kombucha, which I love. (laughs) There's some carbohydrates in that. And in order for my body to be able to process and use the glucose from the carbohydrates I just drank. So very soon, the fact that, that I just ingested carbohydrates, which will be converted into glucose, that glucose is going to signal my pancreas and tell it that there is now glucose coming into my blood and that will need to be taken up by cells so I don't have high blood sugar, which can cause problems, but also my cells might need some glucose to keep running, which they do. They run on glucose largely. So in response, my pancreas is going to secrete insulin. That is a hormone. It's a protein hormone. And insulin will then go around to the cells that need glucose, signal to those cells that glucose is available and should be taken up by those cells. And it does that signaling by interacting with a receptor that is present in this case for protein hormones on the cell surface. So insulin is going to tell those cells that glucose is in my blood. It's going to open up a little portal 
And then glucose can flow into cells to be stored or used for energy. So that is an, a hormone that helps us survive. It helps us run our bodies and it regulates energy availability, mm -hmm. um, essentially. Insulin is an incredibly important hormone and it goes everywhere in the blood, okay? So all hormones are broadcast from cells that produce them or glands that have lots of cells that produce them, produce them like the pancreas or the testes or the gonads or the adrenal gland or the thyroid. All the hormones go everywhere in the blood, but they only affect cells that have receptors for them. Okay, so insulin is about energy regulation. It does all this stuff in the body, but it also goes into the brain and it does something very different. Mm. In the brain, it signals about what the energy situation is in the rest of the body. Why does it do that? Because you have to know how to behave when blood sugar is low. How, how does that work? You're hungry or you're irritable because you need sugar and you have that like um, sugar low. And uh, so the same hormone that controls some really important physiological processes also communicates to the brain to tell it what the energy situation is to affect behavior in ways that we don't really appreciate, but that's what hunger, hunger is a response to hormonal signals. So that same hormone is coordinating physical energy with behaviors needed to also regulate energy, like get more or go spend it by looking for a mate or playing or whatever. Okay. So then we have hormones that are not about survival, but are about reproduction, getting us to reproduce. And those are the steroid hormones, particularly estrogen and testosterone made mostly from the ovaries and the testes. And their whole job is much sort of longer term. So like neurotransmitters and hormones like insulin work much more quickly, right? They have act sort of on off actions, especially neurotransmitters are like that. Protein hormones are a little bit slower, but steroid hormones can coordinate puberty. You know, so they can have really long-term actions on growth, on sperm and egg production. And like you mentioned, in utero, they have incredibly important functions in developing the reproductive system, right? So the whole, all of our reproductive apparatus is set down essentially in utero, but at the same time, testosterone is acting in the brain in the same kind of way that insulin affects the brain and body, testosterone and estrogen, but uh, estrogen not so much in utero. It's mainly testosterone that affects the brain and body in boys in utero, coordinating the development of the brain with the development of a male reproductive system, which means right. sperm are going to be coming online in puberty and organisms that produce sperm have to do different things to reproduce than organisms that produce eggs. And it is testosterone that coordinates the physical and behavioral traits that enable male animals um, to reproduce. And that happens in utero, and that's very important. Those in utero effects on the brain are permanent. They can shape various behaviors in adulthood, even if that animal doesn't go through male puberty, but those animals are, you know, we can just talk about mammals for now. We'll go through a male puberty when testosterone rises again. And that's when 
testosterone further develops the reproductive system and acts on the brain to upregulate status consciousness, competitiveness, Mm. aggression, eventually libido, that all comes online later, and especially sperm start being made. So that's what testosterone (laughs) does. And in the Mm. same way, it acts on the body and, you know, secondary sex characteristics like a deep voice or larger body size, enhanced muscle mass. That's all because males over evolutionary history compared to females benefit more from male, from competition for mates because they produce sperm. And that's on average. Everything I say about sex differences is on average, uh, meaning there's plenty of overlap in these traits. Wonderful. Thank you for that wonderful primer for people who missed biology classes. I think that that'll be really helpful for them. Let's have a conversation, you know, more of like, um, you know, back and forth. Because it's so fascinating to me. I have so many questions. It's so cool. And we should make clear, as you said, uh, you know, we're talking about on average. And there's also other things that are important to recognize, like these things can fluctuate throughout the day. Within a, There's within-person variability as well. There's across the lifespan, you know, as, as, as people get older, testosterone levels tend to decrease, especially, you know, among male narcissists. <laughs> Research has shown that to be the case, that it actually tracks reduced reductions in narcissism, tracks reductions in testosterone as male's age. I think that's really interesting. What's also super interesting about this is that there are other, there are other hormones, there are other neurochemicals, uh, and interactions are fascinating, right? So like, you know, how does testosterone like interact with the cuddle hormone, right? you know, the, Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, how do yeah. these things interact? Because you can have really like high T men and women who also are super compassionate, right? And want to and uh, and want to reduce the oh, suffering. Yeah. Uh, of course, look yeah. at fire firemen. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, they're probably yes. loaded, jacked up on testosterone, but they they want to go in and save lives. Um, so the interactions between these various things are so interesting too, right? Yeah. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. So men do take more physical risks than women, but Mm. it's not all negative. It's not all risks like killing each other or, you know, behaving violently. Like you said, those risks are also to save the lives of others. So men are, you know, I think it's, I want to make clear that women also do this. Women also risk their lives to save the lives of others, but it's much more often their own family, their own children. Men are much more likely to die saving strangers. You know, there's an incredible amount of heroism that it's physical heroism. And yes, women have babies and that is physically risky and dangerous, but I sort of, it's not the same kind of physical risk-taking that is sort of totally by choice in order to save someone else. So I just want to emphasize how important that is because Testosterone gets a lot of press, partly because, as I do argue in my book, I do think it's it's largely responsible for the extremes that are really mm. problematic of male violence, which, you know, there's very low rates of that type of violence in women, but there's higher rates in men. That doesn't mean that most men are very violent. It means right. that most extreme violence is committed by men. And that needs to be addressed. So that is why that gets a lot of attention. What gets less attention are the positive aspects of what testosterone, I think, can do for men, interacting, of course, with our culture. This is all culture, gene, hormone interactions. That's incredibly important. And I'm just going to throw out that, you know, some cultures have very low rates of male violence relatively and some have very high, and that's because of culture, not because of differences in genes or 
testosterone level. You said uh, any sort of cultural differences are explained entirely based on culture, not on testosterone differences on average. Is that is that 100% true? Maybe 100% true. It's not 100 it has not it's not 100% proven. Right. Because you I think what you're getting at is the fact that different populations do have differences in both testosterone level but more importantly the activity of the testosterone receptor. So like I was saying before, in order for a hormone to work, it has to interact with a receptor. The receptor is a protein and there is a gene for all hormone receptors. There's different genes that code for all of the hormone receptors. So the androgen receptor is coded for by the androgen receptor gene. And we can look across populations and it's very clear now. And these are basically racial slash ethnic differences in the gene that codes for the androgen receptors. Are there differences? Yeah. So there are differences. Wow. Um, where, mm. so there are differences, but the cultural differences in my view cannot, all the cultural differences cannot be a product of genetic differences because you can have different laws and cultural norms and religions Mm. in very geographically closely related areas. And you see the cultural norms apparently having an effect on rates of male violence. So if you have very strict rape laws in one country and very loose, say, rape laws or norms in another, and those countries are geographically very closely related where you would not expect there to be any, you know, it's basically two Asian countries yeah. say, um, you will see differences in the degree of a sex difference, say in violence, because if a sex difference in violence is narrow, it's because males are doing less. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not because females are doing more. So all the variation yeah. pretty much in the sex differences in aggression or anything else that has to do with um, physical, that kind of physical risk-taking is due to male variation, which is, as far as I can tell, a function of cultural norms for the most part. If you want to look in different continents, you know, I'm not sure you could make that same claim, Mm. but that's an area I don't even want to really to <laughs> venture into because well, it yeah. you know it's dangerous like i don't think the bang for the buck in terms of what we learn is is worth it right and we obviously do not need to harp on this it is a very very explosive topic um i mean imagine the topic of uh, the same the same discussion in terms of intelligence right it seems like you're also saying there just doesn't even seem to be a lot of it, it's just like that scientific knowledge doesn't seem to be something that would be worth doing or conducting or or well or- no i wouldn't say i don't i wouldn't say that what i am saying is that most of the variation in male violence as far as i can tell is best explained by cultural norms those cultural norms may be a product uh, to some degree or related to those genetic differences, those, those genetic differences. Yeah. That's possible. However, we have the power to change the cultural norms regardless of, of the genetic yeah, contribution. I, I understand that, that that's what you want to, yeah. that's the point you want to highlight. And I think that's a very, very yeah. important point. Yes, I do think that's a very, very important point. And culture seems to be at pretty much everything because I don't think those differences are big enough to 
explain the the different the huge differences we have in male violence across societies. So yes, I hear everything you're saying, but it this stuff gets so tricky when we start talking about like should trans women be able to compete in certain sports, uh, men's sports. So these are really tricky questions because it, in some ways you are saying regardless of culture, like are holding culture constant, there are real effects of testosterone, especially if you're a natal male, right? And you lived your whole life, uh, you know, went through puberty naturally, and that there are real effects of testosterone that no matter what you do with cold, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate with you for a second, if you see what I'm saying, because yeah, it's yeah, almost like- course. There's the issue of trans women in sports and the degree to which the physical advantages that natal males have over natal females translate into a cultural, in this case, it's a, you know, sports, like, well, it's not entirely a cultural advantage, but would translate into some serious physical meaningful difference that plays out in culture in a formalized competition, right? I'm just trying to make the link between the previous conversation and this conversation. So there, so there are real physical differences that matter. That's my that question. Males yeah. are stronger and faster and larger than women, like yeah. no question. And that is all due to testosterone. Like even if there weren't, even if men didn't, you know, spend more time lifting weights in the gym, they would still be bigger, stronger, and faster. I'm bigger, stronger, and faster than some males. So right. this is, again, this is um, on average. And in elite sports, that's where this really plays out because everybody is working out as hard as they can. Even with, say, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live, most men are bigger and stronger than most women. If the laws in Cambridge were so severe that uh, you know, if there was, if there were evidence of sexual assault, if the man is going to go to jail, you know, for 20 years, then you would very quickly see that that physical advantage would become much less meaningful, right? So it's the interaction of the genes, the hormones and the culture that is extremely important there. So I would just argue that culture holds the key to leveling out those differences when they disadvantage people socially. But in sports, the whole point is to have an advantage over other people. And that is condoned and that is encouraged. That's what everybody's trying to do. And that's where then we have to determine, well, what exactly is the source of the advantage? Is there anything we can do about it to accommodate mm. trans women in particular? And the source of the advantage, I, I believe, is clear that's testosterone, but people argue about that. I don't know why it's totally obvious if you look at the science. So the question then is what do you do about it culturally? You know, so it's, it's the same kind of question. Do you have an answer? Like, do you, do you, what do you think is the most reasonable thing to do as a society? Have you, do you have a stance on it? I do. Okay. Most, oh, I'd love to hear yeah, it. No, I have yeah. a strong, yeah. strong stance and I get very emotional about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd love to hear it. The stance is let, sorry, I'm, I have like a personal situation, some personal involvement in this situation because um, this is so controversial. My stance is let people do the research they need to do, publish the relevant research, give people grants for the relevant research, stop stigmatizing people for trying to talk about the evidence and weigh the evidence 
promote like academic freedom and freedom of speech and let people have the facts and let them discuss their points of view without shame or censor. That's my, I almost don't, and, and people will get mad at me for this. I don't really care that much about the actual outcome in sports. What I care about is that in a democracy, people have the right to weigh in on these policy decisions in a way that gives everybody a voice and access to the facts. And we do not have that now. So it's hard to come up with a solution because people are afraid to speak. You know, people are afraid their careers are going to be ruined. They'll be socially ostracized. So while I am firm and uh, clear that trans women have an advantage over natal women on average, because they went through male puberty, they are still bigger and stronger even after they block testosterone and start taking estrogen after mm -hmm. one year, after two years, they still have significantly increased muscle mass. They still have increased body size, longer arms. They have the height, they have the larger heart, larger lungs. Hemoglobin does go down and that makes a difference and their performance will decline you know, after blocking testosterone, but not enough to remove the advantages that gain, they gained from going through male puberty. What you do about that, I have no expertise there. Yeah. I have the expertise in the fact and the scientific facts. Some people think there should be an open category for, there should be an open category where anyone can compete. So that would basically be the women's category Sorry, sorry. That would be the what we had thought of as the men's category, and that the female category would be protected to include only natal females uh, who had gone through their natal puberty, and that that would be the protected category, and then everyone else can compete in an open category. It was like an all gender, all gender category, like bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever, however you identify, whatever hormones. There's an open category, but then there's a protected category for natal females because they are gotcha. at a relative physical disadvantage relative to the gotcha. other, other categories. But the point is people need to be able to have the conversations and be heard. Everyone you know, has different and I think very valid experiences and needs and perspectives, and we should respect people's perspectives and try to understand them and have a conversation, have conversations, and then they, everyone else can figure out <laughs> what to do. But they need the facts. They need the facts. Yeah. And I love that you're taking a very scientific approach to this and trying to just at least have that inform the discussion. I really do appreciate that. So just so people are very clear, um, you have found very clearly that all other things being, being equal, people who have experienced male typical levels of testosterone during puberty will have an athletic advantage over those who did not for much of their adult lives. I mean, that's a scientific fact, right? Yeah. And this is not my original research. This is right. uh, research other people have done, like um, Emma Hilton, Tommy Lundberg, and there's a, yeah. a lot of people who are getting into this now. But that's the evidence we have. We just have no, you know, and you can question that evidence, um, but we have no evidence showing that that initial advantage is lost. We have tons of evidence that shows exactly why men outperform women. 
what we need more of is evidence that shows exactly what happens when you block testosterone that and that's what trans women would do for those of the, those who want to transition with hormones they would block testosterone and take estrogen and you would expect that there'd be some decline in performance and there is some decline but we need more research there and we need some research i think if people wanted to argue that trans women should compete in the female category and and they would argue that that should be fair in terms of physical ability then we would need research that shows that the typical male advantage is lost and that we don't have and we will never have in my view this stuff is even further complicated by the unknowns there are a lot of unknowns i think admitting that you know in, in science uh, on this topic a lot more research needs to be done uh, speci- uh, additionally on the potential adverse side effects of taking testosterone blockers is it true that uh, there could be some some potential long-term adverse consequences that people are not they're not thinking they're only thinking about it from an athletic perspective but then they realize someday they're they're sterile right or they realize some aren't aren't there certain things that could it could lead to that would cause someone to maybe regret making some of those decisions so this is a really big issue really important issue right now so there are a lot of people a lot of families a lot of young people who have gender dysphoria who are very uncomfortable in their sexed bodies and there are good reasons for that you know we live in a very gendered culture and gender nonconformity which is just behaving in a way sometimes since you were little it, in a way that is not consistent with the expected norms for your society for your gender this can be very uncomfortable for people who feel that they want that their behavior is more consistent with the opposite sex so that can lead to to something like gender dysphoria and now what a lot is happening with increasing frequency dramatically increasing frequency is people are identifying as transgender people who have gender dysphoria instead of um progressing through their natal puberty which to many of those people is a horrifying prospect like if you are male but you feel somehow that you know you identify more with females if you start getting a deep voice and growing a beard that can be really really distressing puberty blockers are a drug essentially that blocks the signal from the brain that stimulates hormone production from the testes and ovaries and prevents puberty from commencing so for more and more people with gender dysphoria they're identifying as trans and they are uh being put on puberty blockers because the narrative here in this country mm. and this is changing now in Europe especially like Sweden and Finland and the UK it's a, it's a different situation there now they realize that puberty blockers have a lot of very serious and irreversible effects and this is for children we're talking about mm-hmm. so before Under 18, 18 or even before yeah. puberty has started but here the narrative is that you can just go on puberty blockers and prevent this painful process that you anticipate and that's going to give you time to work out your gender identity but the evidence shows that almost everybody who goes on to puberty who goes on puberty blockers and this would be at the start of puberty around 11 12 13 almost everyone who goes on to puberty blockers like almost 100% 95 to 100% of those people 
continue on to going to cross-sex hormones, meaning if they're male, they will block testosterone and take estrogen and go through an estrogenic puberty. And if they're female, they would take testosterone and develop male some male secondary sex characteristics. But doing that prevents the development of the reproductive system uh-huh. so that the eggs and sperm will never be produced and those people will be infertile for the rest of their forever. Wait, they're definitely going to be infertile? 100, of course. Holy 100%, cow. Of course. You know, I never really thought of that. Of course, you can't yeah. make sperm yeah. You're right. if you don't go through male puberty. You can't make eggs if you don't go through female puberty. That's a big and decision. And neither can you have full sexual function. Wow. Many, if not most, are anorgasmic. Mm. That means they won't have orgasms. They won't have kids. But these people who are making the decision have never had an orgasm. Don't, you know, they're in pain. Like they are making a decision out of feeling sometimes, you know, extremely depressed and scared. But we also have evidence that shows that if people are allowed to progress through their natal puberty, they, most of them discover they're gay. And these are, you know, if they've been gender atypical since childhood, most of those will discover that they're gay and this may be a painful process, especially if they're in a, a region of the world or the country that's homophobic. Some parents actually would prefer to have to transition their kid than have a gay kid. So this is really, really complex. And what needs to happen again, just like the trans women in sports thing, is that the evidence, like we can't have conversations that are open and clear about this either, because the narrative is that if you don't affirm it's even called gender affirming care, right? That's not really an evidence-based way of thinking about this. Their kids' gender, what we don't even know what gender really is exactly, and people's sexuality and sense of their own gender changes over time and changes through puberty. So if you block that, you don't ever uh, allow a child to have the change in their psychology also that comes with discovering their sexual human being who might be attracted to their own sex. So it's extremely complicated. Parents are scared because the narrative is that your kid will commit suicide if you don't affirm their gender. Mm. There isn't good evidence for that at all. And it's highly politicized, unfortunately, like one view, you know, it's progressive and one view is conservative. And that's too bad because what we need is an evidence-based view. Yeah. Well, evidence-informed view, I definitely am on board with. I don't think it it can 100% make the decisions for individuals, but to be informed by that. I was under the impression that gender-affirming care is a wide range of services. It's it's like just like you go in and you're like, let's explore what's going on here and uh, let's figure out as a team what might be the best solution. It doesn't – it's not equivalent to you're going to take – puberty blockers, right? It could be psychological aspects. Like even, so for instance, maybe just changing your pronoun might actually be very psychologically beneficial to some of these people. Well, it has been shown in their personal experience. Yes. No. And that's, that's true that the short-term outcomes can be positive, but changing a pro- changing pronouns and mm-hmm. identifying yeah. socially as the opposite sex and starting to wear the clothes of the opposite sex leads to puberty blockers and transition. So because you sort of can't go back, it's difficult to go back once socially you've come out as I am trans. So what you're saying is pronouns are a gateway drug. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was, I mean, that was there cheeky. Is, I wish we could live in a society where you have your own pronouns that reflect your sex, but yeah. that there are the, you know, and this, who knows where we're going, but if, if I, for instance, could just wear a tie and a baseball cap or you know whatever, and have a very male masculine uh, social role or that you could wear makeup and just do express your gender however you want. I wish that's where we're going and maybe we are going there because a lifetime of surgery and drugs and complications, which is what we have, you know, it's a huge people I don't think understand quite what they're signing up for. That doesn't mean it isn't right for some people. I think it definitely, you know, transitioning definitely is. I think that we need more caution. Some people argue we have the right amount of caution. Some people think that we have nowhere near enough. But again, I think we need more research and discussion. We definitely need more research. And I appreciate you bringing in the research. I think we need less moral panics as well. I think yes. that uh, you see it on all sides, though. Um, you know, again, it's been my understanding with gender affirming care from what I've understood so far is that there are actually a lot, a lot of hoops you have to jump through in order to actually go to the level of cha- of of taking like purity blockers or so that that's that's my impression. That's what I hear from trans people. It's very it variables. I mean, there are res- really responsible clinics, and there are clinics where you can. Um, oh, really? Get Just your a snap of the finger, very- really? Yeah, and there's surgeries. You know, there's. Um, mastectomies that easily can be done even without parental consent. Yes. And it varies, varies a lot. So the United States is now somewhat behind Europe in terms of the laws around this and the evidence that's the sort of, there's much more caution around puberty blockers now in a lot of places in Europe because they have now been, because they have more public healthcare systems that are now more evidence based we have a for profit healthcare you know entirely for profit healthcare largely for profit healthcare system there are mm. different standards for evidence uh, and i think okay. that's important yeah they're just more cautious i would say okay so that's a good point too so there's there's a huge variability in just how many hoops and, yes. and how well thought through it is how well as a team of medical doctors, parents, you know, everyone trying and the child at triangulating the decision. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem here is that medical professionals who disagree with the current treatment model are very hesitant to say so publicly. They'll be vilified. Yeah. It's, they're really slammed and their careers can be ruined. So I don't think we have an environment that facilitates really the production and discussion of really high quality evidence around all this stuff. And we just don't have enough research. It's interesting, the complementary perspectives between the evolutionary biology perspective and the psychology perspective. It's almost like evolutionary biology uh, is really important um, in explaining the sex binary, which I know is that's controversial too, is sex the binary. The sex what? The sex binary, dare I say? Dare I yeah, say? Yeah. Dare, am I allowed to say sex it, is a binary? You said it. Is that right? yeah. <laughs> From an evolutionary point of view, of course it has to be, or else none of us would exist. That's very controversial. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. Um, and of course, uh, intersex pe- intersex people do exist, but they um, usually they can be classified, you know, as either male or female, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, intersex is a is a tough term. Some people don't like that term. They like disorder or difference of sexual development that are, you know, as a male condition or a female condition where there's, so just to be clear, yeah, there's male and female, but then 
everything else pretty much is on a spectrum, even, you know, chromosomes and genitalia and behavior, obviously. So something like gender, uh, all the behaviors, but also even the physical traits are, you know, can be on a spectrum. Those are important aspects of sex. Those are traits associated with sex, but that's different from sex, male and female, and that's all there is. So that's what I'm saying from the, there's, there are different levels of analysis. So from an, from an evolution biology perspective, um, that focus on sex is, um, makes a lot of sense. And reproduction, I mean, obviously from an evolutionary point of view, reproduction is important, but from the psychology perspective, and, and I'm really trying to understand gender, right? Like I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I'm, you know, a psychologist trying to understand this fascinating cultural phenomenon of such a, we're seeing a interesting flip. There used to be mostly it was uh, transgender men, cross-dressers, right? Like, and now so trans, women. Trans, trans women. women. I'm sorry, I'm getting so confused. No, no, trans- it's confusing. Yeah. Please help me. <laughs> help me here. Okay. There um, were more men, there were th- that's far what I'm trying more to say. males who identified as trans yes. than females. Now we have a huge flip rise in females who are not, have not had evidence of any gender atypical behavior or feelings until they got close to puberty. That's the population we're really seeing now, which is right. um, escalating and, and asking for puberty blockers and hormones. Males are too, and most of them are probably were, were going to be gay. This is what's interesting is that there are multiple pathways to trans. Uh, there's not a single unitary mechanism yes, and people don't- yes. Yes, no, I know so it gets very confusing. This is why when you lump it all together, it, you know, because you have like middle-aged men, you know, like Caitlyn Jenner, right? Or not? Is that who was it? What Jenner yeah. was it? Caitlyn Jenner. You can have middle-aged men decide yeah. just that they're gonna they're gonna be uh, change their pronouns, but you can have prepubescent uh, children now, who, and it seems yeah. to be mostly young uh, girls. But so these all can't be explained by the same mechanism. Yes. Can I just pause for one second? Because what, what you're saying is so, so important because people have this idea that we just have to identify those kids who are trans and those are the ones we have to give the treatment to. Yeah. I don't yeah. think there is a trans, one trans phenotype and that it's no. not the case that then that kid is the one who has to be transitioned. It's about gender dysphoria. It's about that really complicated feeling of not like not wanting to be in your gendered body, not wanting it, not wanting to grow into a man or a woman, fearing you know, not wanting to be behave in the way that you think the social your uh, social expectations are for your gender, just feeling so uncomfortable. So that's not the same as trans. So I'm just really glad that you made that distinction. Most people do not. Yeah, why do most people like in this debate they're like sometimes they talk past each other. I mean, sometimes I look I watch some of these debates on Twitter and no one's listening to each other. Like like trans people who feel frustrated that their experience are not being listened to and then you also have though those who are called turfs, uh, those are labeled, they're labeled turfs, but are their are their experiences being listened to by the trans people? No. <laughs> so well, some, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are listening to each other. I know some trans people who agree with the TERFs, and I know some trans people who disagree with them, and they're able to have conversations. But then there's like this vocal minority 
on both sides who are dominating, you know, these conversations in kind of ugly ways. Is that because they're high um, in testosterone? <laughs> I can't help myself. No, no, you. no. I, you are. There is something to that because this is controversial, but um, I s believe that the prenatal exposure to testosterone. Well, I know a hundred percent that it does. It has lasting effects not just on the body, but also on the brain. And you can't, un you don't undo that. So yeah, there are some extremely outspoken trans women and trans men, but you don't really hear from the trans men. It's the, it's, I mean, you do, but it's really trans uh, women, a mi small minority of trans women, mostly trans women who are, can be extremely um, enthusiastic. You know who Buck Angel is? Of course. Yes, he's going to be on my podcast soon with two uh, ev other evolution, ev two other scientists, um, and I'm going to have a who's three. he coming on with? Marco Del Gucci, who's a good friend of mine, and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. science studies the science sex differences, and um, Deborah yep. So. Yeah, but he's a kind of a, a minority voice in that space. Yeah, I mean, he is interesting because he says I'm female. You know, he has no problem. And he's a huge, he's a huge macho yeah. guy, yeah. like cigar smoking, tattooed, Correct. hairy, you Correct. know, the, the works, which I think it's great that he is just able to not sort of require other right. people to right. endorse what he says would be a fiction, you know, that he is in fact a man. And I have no problem with that socially. Like, I think that's the right thing to do is to, for me, you know, use people's preferred pronouns. And I know a lot of trans people and I know how heartbreaking it is for them when that doesn't happen. But Buck happens to be different. He's comfortable with that. And I think it's different for trans men. I think sometimes trans women have a greater need to have people acknowledge their, you know, womanhood. And I think we, as long as we can do that without anyone else paying a cost for that, I think we should. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about letting, listening to different people's lived experiences. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it costs very little to say that you're going to listen to someone's lived experiences. That costs very little. It costs more to fight it and to be aggressive to a human who, when who's trying to tell you what it's like to be who they are. I love, I just, I love what you're saying. Oh, I yeah. love, I love, thank you. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, that's I my spirit. That that's my spirit. Of it yeah. costs very, it costs very little. And I mean, like, you're getting yeah. teary eyed about it, but, yeah, that's what we need to do. Yeah. It's just, you're right. It costs nothing. I love, I love putting yeah. it that way. I just wish we could all listen to each other more. And, you know, with my yes and attitude, listen to each other's live experiences more and be allowed to bring in some objective objectivity. <laughs> Are we allowed to do that at all? You know, and I know that you have probably sometimes been frustrated that you haven't really been able to bring in some facts that you have found. What's the climate like at Harvard these days? Is it, um, you know, uh, you know, wasn't E.O. Wilson in your department? Okay, so I'm in human evolutionary biology, and I should say that I'm on, on leave right now, so I don't know. I haven't been there all um, semester. But E.O. Wilson was in organismic and evolutionary biology, which is in, like right across from my department, which is human evolutionary biology. But he, yeah, he had water thrown on him for saying, you know, he was he was a controversial figure saying, there. Yeah. He was vilified. Yeah, he was very controversial. But of course, he, everything he said was basically, you know, basically right. But it's threatening to people to assert that there's a biological basis for behavior, <laughs> human 
behavior because then people think that means that it's that we think it's right or that we can't change immutable, it. Immutable. Both of those yeah. Wrong, yeah. You know? Absolutely. So what's your personal experience like being an evolutionary biologist in 2022? Is it different than being an evolutionary biologist in like 2001? Maybe not. Okay. Maybe not. Um, it's a human, it's the human evolutionary biology piece and, and mm. particularly, so I teach about the stuff we're talking about and my undergrads are do, awesome. Do any of um, them, do any of them like protest or? No, they, I've had like one person complain, one person a few years ago complained that I used the wrong pronouns to talk. I was talking about somebody with a disorder of sexual development who is female. And I called her, she, even though she had some, she had body hair and looked male and I called her, she, and this person wrote a letter, but really my undergrads, sorry, I, I, I love them. We have great discussions. We disagree all the time. They disagree with each other. They disagree with me. We always learn from each other and we hear, mm. we hear each other. And I have there, that's been like incredible teaching undergrads at Harvard has been incredible. However, I never changed anything I said or taught pretty much in any way to accommodate the people who I thought would try to attack me or call me names or transphobic or whatever. I never adopted, you know, what they wanted me to say or the language they wanted me to use, which is to say like sex isn't binary, it's on a spectrum, or I don't know what else I was expected to say, but it was uncomfortable. It became extremely uncomfortable in my department. There's an article in the Harvard Crimson yesterday. You can just go look at that article on academic freedom. And it links to another Crimson article, which described what happened to me when I went on mm. TV and said there are two sexes. <laughs> mm. It was bad. It was all very bad. And other bad things happened that made it very difficult for me to do my job. That's really unfortunate. I, I really wish that we could just be really clear in all these kinds of discussions that there, yes, we acknowledge there's a difference between sex and gender identity. First of all, when people just say sex, they, they may think that's equivalent to gender, like in, in every case in the world. And gender identity is more of a psychological thing. You know, it's like there's, we're still understanding exactly what it is, but it's certainly, certainly people differ in what they identify with. That's undeniable. Right. And it's um, so I wish just first of all, people would make those differences. And I just I suppose maybe you say you've said things and then people do a lot of inference. They they they, they connect a lot of dots in terms of what you must think or what you must believe personally. Well, I don't even think that's the case. They just don't want me to say that sex. They've been clear. I mean, if it's clear that refusal to say that sex is on a spectrum is was not okay. Or, you know, I, I don't say this, but you can't change your sex, right? You can change a lot of other things because I don't think people have to go around saying that, right? But that would be another thing that you're not allowed to say. So it's not connecting the dots. It's having someone in my position say something like that, that seems to undermine transgender rights. And to me, we've got to have the science and the facts and then talk about what are the implications for people's rights and our and policies. And we have to have compassionate and open discussions and listen to people. I, I so strongly agree with you 
if we have all this division and this suppression of science, people aren't going to open their hearts and minds to people who are suffering, who they think are opposing them. You know, so it's all the science is getting all caught up in all this ideological stuff. That is a disaster. The political, social, and ideological stuff has to grapple with the science, and we have to do it in as compassionate and open a way as possible with the facts. It's not just me. Many people in my field are saying that they feel they cannot even publish the research that they mm. want to do or that, that they are doing. They can't get grants. They can't say what they want to say. They can't teach what they want to teach. Do you think someday, like with CRISPR technologies, we'll be, we'll be able to actually modify like our chromosomes, you know, like let's, let's delete an X there. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Will we ever be able to get to a point, do you think, where we can actually go in at that level and change our sex? You'd have to change the chromosomes in every single cell to it's be sure. It's going to be hard. <laughs> so it's interesting because I, I think that it's really not the chromosomes, it's the, what the chromosomes lead to, which is testosterone versus estrogen. I think that's what mm. really has the impact on everything related to sex. So, so we have good evidence for that in people who have complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, who have XY sex chromosomes in mm. all of their cells. They even have internal testes that produce testosterone. Mm. However, they can't receive the testosterone. Their androgen receptors don't work. And these people are extremely feminine, typically. And research shows that they score lower in three-dimensional rotation tasks. I, I summarized that in my master's thesis. And that's fascinating. So, so I would think if you can stop the production of testosterone in utero, it has to mm. be from the get-go, from the first few weeks, because that's what's changing that changes the brain. And you also mm. want to stop the physical development. Because even if you didn't have testosterone, if you just had the male body, you're going to have changes in psychology because of social roles. So you might, yeah, I think maybe that could happen, but not via, you know, necessarily manipulating the chromosomes. Mm. We just don't know how important the genetic differences are that, you know, apart from the effects of testosterone, it appears not super, uh, but there's more research to be done there. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, look, I, I just really appreciate you coming to my podcast today um, and all the work that you do. I, I can say that testosterone is such a fascinating, fascinating hormone. Sometimes I wake up with the most loving feeling in the world and I want to just tweet out, may everyone cuddle today and then I'll go to the gym and have a really great uh, weightlifting session and then all I want to do is dominate everyone that I see. So <laughs> I I know testosterone matters. <laughs> I just got my book out. This is the British This is the British cover, but it's the testosterone. I just want to give my book a plug. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Um <laughs> everyone buy Carol Hooven's book. Um so for people who can't see the the YouTube, they're listening to it audio. The, oh, the book okay. is called Testosterone. So the book in the United States is called T the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. And you can get a link to it on carolhooven.com uh, or Amazon. And Carol has an E on the end, which is a pain, but. Great. Thanks. Thanks for being on my show today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And I love your whole perspective on all of this. You're just so, Thank so you. compassionate and sensible. And um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. That means a lot.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.